We're not going to cover all of chapter 11 today, so uh, you can take a side of re- relief there. Um, but I wanted you to hear, hear the whole chapter because um, I think it's meant as one episode. It's meant to be um, heard in one setting. And in fact, it's, it's really difficult to kind of split it up into different scenes. Um, so I, I actually had a hard time deciding where I was going to end this message, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that works. Um, this chapter is, is a pivot in the story of Jesus's life that Matthew is, is sharing with us. And um, keep in mind that Matthew is sharing the story of Jesus with us, with all of his readers, to convince them that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, um, who's who's ushering in the kingdom of God. So the pivot, um, the pivot is now that the opposition against Jesus is going to be a lot stronger. As we move forward in the book of Matthew, you're going to see that. In the past, as Jesus was gaining prominence in the land and among the people, those who didn't like him um, didn't really create much stir about it. They were kind of just assessing and, and figuring out, you know, what he was about and what his message was. So at best, you know, they just wanted him to go away and leave them alone. Um, and at worst, they, they withheld judgment um, to see, you know, like I said, who he was and what he's doing. But after this chapter, those who reject him are going to grow in their animosity and start conspiring to kill him. And it's not hard to understand why. <laughs> he, com- he compares them to impossible school children. Before we dive into this narrative, though, let's, let's ask the Lord um, for grace to understand and hearts to receive him. Dear Father, we do need uh, you you to work within us as we just uh, heard read from your word that um, only those who who come to you, who who receive you are those who who you have revealed the truth to. And Lord, I pray that each person in this room will be accounted among those people. Lord, open our hearts to receive the truth that you have here. Amen. So this episode opens up with John the Baptist coming to Jesus as his messengers, right? His messengers are coming, the disciples of John the Baptist, excuse me, are coming as messengers to Jesus, asking him if he is the Messiah. There's some need for interpretation here, okay? Was John questioning his faith? Was he losing faith? Was he just confused? What's going on? The text says, when John heard about the deeds of Christ. So John is in prison. He hears about the deeds of Christ and he sends his disciples out to ask him if he is indeed the Messiah or should they wait for another. I take this to mean that John knew the deeds that Jesus was doing pointed to him being the Messiah. And yet, something wasn't adding up. There was There must be something that John was not seeing because after all, he was in prison. He was, there was something veiled in his eyes that he was not recognizing. We'll finish that thought in another verse, verse 11 to be exact. But let's think about this just for a minute longer. John preached a message back in Matthew chapter three of how the Messiah would gather the righteous to himself and cast out the un- and cast out the wicked. Remember, he he said his axe is at the base of the tree, ready to cut down the wicked. Said that he had all the grain in his barn, and all he had to do is throw it up, and the wind would blow away the chaff. I mean, like 
This is imminent. This is, this is about ready to happen. That was John the Baptist's message. And yet how then could he, the one who was sent to prepare the way of the Messiah, be sentenced to die in prison, in a cell, while the Messiah was out walking around doing miracles? I mean, something was not adding up here. You could see John the Baptist's confusion, his, his frustration even, that he was there rotting in a cell waiting to be beheaded. Why the Messiah who he preached and proclaimed and prepared the way for was out. Was he not counted among the righteous? I mean, you can just imagine all the questions stirring in John the Baptist's mind as he sat in a cell waiting to die. It didn't seem right. didn't seem fair. didn't make sense at all. And John's confusion might have even led him to doubt the message that he'd been given by God. And they even has caused him to doubt God himself. So he sends out his messengers and Jesus responds to him. And his response is meant to bolster and strengthen John the Baptist's faith as he prepares for death. Jesus says, go and tell John what you see and hear. Jesus appeals to John's knowledge of the scriptures about Christ. I mean, John the Baptist sent his disciples there in the first place because he knew, okay, the things that you're doing indicate you're the Messiah, but I'm in prison. (laughs) We don't have time to to go through all the things, but what Jesus says, he said, the deaf hear, the lame walk, all those actions that the Messiah, that Jesus is doing are prophecies recorded. So I encourage you, if you have a study Bible or a reference Bible, go look those up sometime. So in, in doing so, in referring John the Baptist back to the things that he's doing, which is the whole reason John sent the disciples in the first place, Jesus is appealing to John's faith. He already believes the scriptures about the Christ. And Jesus is also appealing to his mind, to, to his logic. Look with your eyes. What is it you see? It's evidence. Jesus does not condemn John for his questions. He doesn't tell him, just have more faith. Jesus gives John, who is seeking him, wanting answers, what he needs to strengthen his faith. Church, we have a responsibility to to be able to answer questions. And in fact, I believe it's Peter says, be prepared in season and out of season season, to give an answer for those who question you about your faith. That that means you and I have a responsibility to understand what it is we believe, why we believe it, and have answers for others when they come to us. How do you have answers for other people? (laughs) Because you've, you've had those questions yourself and you've sought those answers yourself. They don't just come willy-nilly out of nowhere. But I also take comfort from this because I have questions. I have doubts. And for crying out loud, if John the Baptist himself has questions and doubts, I guess I'm in good company. And Jesus responds to John exactly what John needs. He refers him back to the scriptures. He encourages us faith. John, 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 it's okay, John, you know. It may not be adding up right now, 
But you, you know, keep the pace, stay the course. You'll understand in time. So when the disciples of John leave with their answer, Jesus turns to the crowd and he is just locked and loaded. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Well, what did the the rhetorical question, there's a rhetorical answer, it's no. (laughs) No, they didn't go to the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind. Well, then what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The point of Jesus' questioning was to point out that John was in fact a prophet. And in fact, he was the first of his kind in 450 years. There had been 450 years before a man of God, a prophet sent by God with a message for his people, had been on the earth. And John the Baptist was also the last prophet of his age. See, you don't go out to the wilderness to see a man dressed funny because you can go to town and see that. You don't go out to the wilderness to see a clump of grass because you can go in your backyard and see that. Jesus was pointing out that by their very actions, going to see John in the wilderness, going out of their way, seeking him, they were proving John's place in the kingdom of God. John was a unique character. And Jesus is saying, by your very actions, you are admitting that John is a prophet. That's significant. In the next verses, Jesus praises John as an example. Picking back up in verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. That is serious commendation coming from Jesus. No one who's been born of women yet is as great as John the Baptist. Yet, uh-oh, wait just a minute. Yet, the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Okay, we got we to stop here. What is going on? How in the world is John the Baptist the greatest person, the greatest man born among women at this time, and then yet Jesus can say that even the least in the kingdom of God is going to be greater than John the Baptist? I mean, he's like topsy-turvy. I'm not sure his scales are right here, okay? John was the final prophet of an era in God's plan of salvation for the world. He was the last one. The prophets called God's people back to him and declared the coming of a Messiah. And here's John. He pointed to the Messiah when the Messiah was actually alive. No greater privilege could there have been in God's plan of salvation up to that point. And yet, he did not get to see that new era installed. He did not get to see the era that Jesus would inaugurate through his death and resurrection, which would bring many into God's family and give each one the Holy Spirit of God. 
What was veiled from John's eyes was that Jesus was going to do something nobody expected. He was going to die. And through this death, a new age would dawn. The kingdom of heaven would reside in the hearts of God's people who would then spread throughout neighborhoods, communities, regions, states, countries, the entire world to bring the news of Jesus, his love and his power so that all would have an opportunity to come back to God through faith and repentance. Because we live in that era, we are greater than John the Baptist. Does that shock you? You heard me right. I said we are greater than John the Baptist because we live in an era that John the Baptist did not get to see. It was veiled from him. He did not know what God was doing. Just that the Messiah was there, he did not understand what that meant. But not only do we get to understand what it means, we live in it. (laughs) Does that shock you? It does me. It shocks me so much that I wonder if I have the right interpretation of this passage. It shocks me so much. Do we live like it's true? Do we live like we live in a privileged era that makes us greater in the kingdom of God than John the Baptist? So often, so often. And I've been there myself. Oh, if I could just live with Elijah. If I could have just been there when John the Baptist baptized Jesus. That's foolish according to God's plan of salvation. They wanted to live in our era. And if, in Hebrews, it talks about all the people of faith. We're going to talk about this again in a minute, but not in this way. And at the end of Hebrews 11, if you read it, it says they did not get to see their faith come to fruition. They longed to see what we get to see. They longed to live in an era that we get to live in, where all of God's people have the spirit of God and the power of God within them. But for our sake, it was withheld from them so that we could be included. Do we believe this? Are we going to live like it's true? Or are we just going to take it for granted? Like, like a child looks at the toy they got last month at Christmas. Oh, yeah, it's old news now. We Christians do not understand the inheritance we've been given. And it's a shame. Talk about having thankful hearts. Talk about living on purpose with a mission. We are among the most privileged people. And yet we complain. Things aren't how we want them to be. What are we going to do with this honor that we have been given? That the prophets of old longed to live in the era of redemption that we get to live in. What are we going to do with this privilege? Are we going to squander it? Are we going to sit on it? Are we going to take it for granted? Are we going to ignore it? Are we just going to choose not to believe it? Or are we going to seek to understand it? Are we going to trust it? Are we going to be empowered by it? Are we going to live it? Are we going to show it? I pray we do. And in that way, let us be like John the Baptist. This next passage verses 12 and 13 can be very confusing. But there's a reason why they're connected right there with John, and I'll explain that as we move on. 
From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Suffered violence and the violent take it by force is a play on words. And I think the key for understanding it is in verse 13, which begins with four. So it's an explanation of what Jesus means. He says, all the prophets and the law prophesied, meaning that all the prophets and the Old Testament, the law were declared um, declared to the people the coming of the kingdom of God. They were, they were the way that the people could enter into the kingdom of God. They were a way that people could be a part of the kingdom. The law said, this is God's instructions for the way you want to live. And the prophets called back to the law and the prophesied about the coming Messiah. So that, that was the way people were a part of the kingdom of God. And yet, what happened to them? Let's take a look at Hebrews 11, which I just referenced earlier to find out. Hebrews 11, verse 32, talking about, talking about the prophets, talking about the, the men of old who, who are strong in their faith. What happened to them? What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained the promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. See, what we like to do is we like to pull out Abraham, Samson, Gideon, King David, and we take those guys and we say, oh man, look at how blessed they were. Look at what God did in their lives. Man, I want to be like that. And we forget about all the ones who died declaring God's word. Others suffered mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world is not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. The people who were at the pinnacle the tip of the spear for the kingdom of God in the days of old ran around homeless. They, they fled for their lives. They were beaten. They were tortured. They were executed. So while violence was committed against them, them who were promoting and declaring the kingdom of God, who were ministering the kingdom of God to those who would believe, to God's people, those who were themselves experiencing the kingdom of God, while they, were, while they were on the receiving end of violence, they were also the ones who were violently seizing the kingdom. That's what it means that the kingdom of God suffered violence. The prophets, the men of old, suffered because of their place in the kingdom of God. So up until the law and prophets up till, dawn, up till John, 
The kingdom was suffering violence. Violence was done to the people of God. And now, the violent take it by force. This means that those who enter the kingdom of heaven do not enter by happenstance. They do not enter in by doing nothing. They're not lax in their pursuit of God and his righteousness. No. They're not the ones who could be called careless or indifferent for the love of God. Their entrance into the kingdom of God is not a soft landing. Their activity in entering into the kingdom of God is so intense, so full of energy, so passionate, so fierce, so forceful, so faithful that it can be called violent. And it is they and they only who will enter the kingdom of God. So while in the past the kingdom of God has suffered violence, and John the Baptist is kind of the perfect example for this, because here he was awaiting death, and yet he was remaining faithful. So his experience of being persecuted and executed was violence being done to him who was in the kingdom of God. And yet it is also him who persevered and was faithful and strong in that moment that he was enacting violence to take the kingdom of God. And a scathing remark, this is just amazing to me. After praising John and using him as as the prime example of what it means to enter into the kingdom of God forcefully, violently, fiercely, intensely, He looks at the crowd and says, but who shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces calling to their playmates, we played a flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus just land blasts them. He he just talked about John, who fiercely suffered violence. And rather than comparing these people to the people of old who who stood firm in their faith, their faith to God against all odds, all persecution, all violence. He looks at them and says, you're like an unpleasable child. No wonder the religious leaders and the fence riders turned on him. If there's one thing that Jesus hated, it was religious hypocrisy. If there were two, then add to religious hypocrisy its twin of self-righteousness. Jesus calls them out. Do you understand this illustration he makes? It's like children playing on the playground, and there's, there's one child who just won't get along with anybody. They have to have their way, and so, okay, you want to go play this? Great, let's go play. I don't want to go play that. I don't want to go do this other thing. Okay, we'll do that too. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go. It's like, you cannot please this person. He's saying, that's all of you. 
That's all of you. School children who cannot be pleased. Their hard heart makes them want and demand the opposite of what God is doing in their midst. They demand to have their way and then change their mind on a dime and demand that you change with them. In other words, they're impossible. Oh, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Oh, oh, now you want words of wisdom. Here you go. I have words for wisdom for you. Oh, now you want love and comfort. Okay, here. Here, I'll give you love and comfort. Oh, now you want judgment and doom. Okay, here's that. Oh, now, now you're back to miracles. No, we're done. I cannot continue bending and playing games for you. None of it makes any difference because of their hard-hearted, selfish unbelief. Their core, their heart was just soaked in self-righteousness. I've come to the conclusion that self-righteousness is a hard-hearting, a heart hardening agent that destroys a purpose a person's soul faster and more thoroughly than any sin you can commit when you're convinced that you're a good moral person who only needs a little saving if 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 any if there's any ounce of you that thinks you're a good enough person, you just lack this one small little thing, your soul is, is black. Because what you're saying is you're saying that I am really, really, really good, unlike all these other really bad sinners. And that comes from pride and judgment. And there's only one person who's ever existed on the face of the planet and in the universe who owns glory. Who's good enough to look at themselves and say, hey, look at me, I'm great. And everyone else just falls short. God doesn't play games with us. He refuses to play games with us. So the people wanted a prophet and they got a prophet. 450 years waiting, they got a prophet and they said, this guy is weird. He must be crazy. So then they, they get the Messiah. And he lives completely different than that prophet. And they say, well, shoot, he's just like the rest of us. He's a sinner, a drunk. Look at him. God will not play games with the church. He will not play games with you. You can either get on board his ship, and he's the captain, or he's leaving without you. So what's going to be? Will you, be low, will you be like those who play games, thinking you're in the kingdom of God, but in truth you're just full of yourself and impossible to please? Or are you going to be like John the Baptist, who though, though he was in dire need of, of faith and reassurance, Jesus turns to him because he turned to Christ asking for help. Able to stand against un. Able to stand against his unbelief. John the Baptist was in prison. 
He was waiting to die. And the prophet, the Messiah, who he had been declaring was to come, was out there with the people. Didn't seem to care about him at all. There is no in-between with Jesus. He is looking for real players. He is looking for followers who are all in, who are not wasting their time to see if things go their way before they come on board. All right, with Jesus, it's being fierce or it's nothing. You can either be among the people who are taking the kingdom by force, meaning you're passionate, meaning you are energetic, meaning you are so fierce in your faith and the righteousness and knowing and knowledge, knowledge and love of God that not even death is going to take you back. Or you can be like the people of Jesus' generation who are fickle and unpleasable. And Jesus says, I'm done with you. Those are the only options. I pray that we as a church are like John the Baptist. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come to you.